Good morning. We are in the middle of a series that we've been doing for a few weeks now um, called With. And um, a lot of people have picked up on the fact, and Pete may have mentioned it the first week, that it's based off of a book by the same name um, by a guy named Sky Jathani. And uh, great book, and there's a lot more stuff in here than what we can cover throughout the series. So if you want to kind of dive in a little bit deeper, if you really like what you've been hearing throughout this whole series, um, then I encourage you to pick that book up and read through it and really um, see what God has for you. But we've been going through um, kind of the the big ideas from that book in this series uh, to kind of cap out the rest of our summer. Uh, And this is going to take us through um, the... uh, I guess that's Labor Day weekend, Um, we'll end this series and then we're going to start a brand new series for the fall, which is going to be a vision casting series for Cultivate kind of moving forward and uh, what it is that we're kind of looking to do and to be uh, when it comes to not just the fall, but really for the future of our life here together. And I'm really excited to, uh, to share with you guys what God is doing in our congregation and what I believe that God will do through us as we look to be on mission with him uh, in South Jersey. In the meantime, we're, uh, we're kind of in part three of this series, and uh, what we've been doing throughout this series is that we've been kind of reimagining what it looks like to be in relationship with God. Um, and, and throughout the series, we are kind of uncovering some of the false ways that we tend to perceive a relationship with God. And we may not be aware of those things and how they operate in our lives, but as we've uncovered them and start to describe what they look like, I hope that this has been a good exercise for you to say, well, maybe I have been relating to God in a way that he never intended for me to relate to him. Uh, and, And so often we settle or various ways of being in relationship with God that weren't the way that he intended. In fact, they weren't the way that he went through great lengths to secure us to be able to relate to him. One of those ways that we talked about, actually Pete mentioned in week one, was life under God, which is kind of the the religious, moralistic, rule-keeping kind of person that says, I'm going to do all that I can to live a certain life, and when I live that certain life, God will bless it and he will act in a certain way. And so by being a certain religious kind of person, I can, in a sense, control who God is and make him act the way that I would like him to act for my life. And we found out that that never works for us. And the other one that we found out about was life over God. And this is the the kind of act of reducing God down to a set of kind of lowest denominator principles. And if I can just kind of get God into a box and figure out what God would do in every circumstance, then I can just do those things myself and I don't actually need the God who will lead me into all things. And what we've been discovering throughout this whole thing is that reducing God in any kind of these ways actually leads us to less of a relationship with Him and it leads us to less control over our lives. And all these things we're doing, we're trying to kind of grab hold of some kind of control to make life seem more manageable. And what we discover is oftentimes that those things lead us to feel less controlling and lead us to despair. And so we're going to unpack the third of these kind of false ways of thinking. And the question that we have to kind of come to is where do we go from here? Um, And I want to start us out by doing a little bit of an activity. How many of you 
have ever taken an inkblot test? Anyone? A couple people? How many of you have like, seen an inkblot test on the internet and you just decided to do it on your own and sort of see what you can make of it? So I, I figured what we would try to do this morning is do a little bit of an inkblot test. We're going to show a few of them, and then I want you to shout out to me what it is that you see on the screen, okay? Um, I, and you all think I'm going to trick you. I know that I... You think you know me well enough. But these are actual real inkblot tests, and so I want you to tell me what you see on the screen, all right? So we're going to do the first one. Lips. All right, man. What's a sheep? What's the sheep doing? Two bunnies and a sheep. Okay. Anybody on this side of the room? Flowers. Okay. All right. These are like knee-jerk reactions, right? You should see it and instantly have something in your mind. So if you have to think about it too hard, you're probably not doing it right. So let's try again. Here's the second one. Lips again. (laughs) I'm starting to see a pattern. We're going to talk afterwards. (laughs) Trees on a hill. A dead butterfly. (laughs) <laughs> all right, all right, well, let's, let's try the, the, the third and the last one, okay? Get your minds ready. An inkblot. Perfect. <laughs> What's this? Two old ladies fighting. <laughs> what are they fighting about? <laughs> the size of their hips. Wow. We're unpacking a whole lot of stuff here. This is just, it's going to work really well later on in the sermon. One more? Twins. Okay. See, if you've ever taken an inkblot test before, here's what you discover. Um, There isn't actually anything in the inkblot. Did you know that? There's no real pictures in them. And so what you're doing is you're actually projecting onto those images what's already in your mind. And so it, that's the scary part, right? Especially if you're saying lips over and over again. We got to talk, Josh. I'm serious. <laughs> but that's what we do, actually. Our, our mind creates a bunch of images. And so somebody designed a test to be able to kind of uncover some of the subliminal things that are going on in our minds, things that we value things that we see, how we frame the world, how we view things in our mind. And when we see a random object or picture that really is nothing in and of itself, we project onto it something of ourselves and make it into something that it's not. See how that works? Um, And here's the danger. We do this all the time. In almost every aspect of life, who we are and what we value and what shapes us, um, we project that out from ourselves onto something in the world and we interpret the way that it exists rather than seeing the way that it actually is. Does that make sense? And not only do we do this of every area of life, we also do this of God. Um, One of my professors, his name is Scott McKnight, um, does a test 
at the front end of every class that he teaches on Jesus. And, and what he does is this. He takes a, a personality test of every student in the room. And so you're, you're to figure out, are you an extrovert or an introvert? Um, do, do you see things as they will be or do you see them as they currently are? Um, all these things, what do you value? Who are you as an individual? It's actually like three pages long. And then what he does is he asks you to write out a list of all the things that you think are true of who Jesus is. Just list out who you think he is. And what kind of characteristics does he have? What sort of qualities does he have? What does he do in his spare time? Like all this stuff that isn't really written about, but just think for a moment how it is that you interpret who he is. And what he found is, over about 10 or 15 years of experience, is that he would match up students' interpretation of who Jesus is with their, with their kind of self-personality exam, and more often than not, they were one and the same. Did you know that? We all do that to some extent. We project our own self-image onto God and kind of make him, in a sense, a reflection of who we are as people. All of us do it. So, so the thing is, we, we need to understand what it is that we are. Like, who are we and what do we value most above every other thing out there? What makes us tick as individuals? Here's what you'll probably discover if you look at the, the sweep of American society. And I'll just use America as, as an example what you will find is that more often than not, you and I value what we can consume. We, we look out into the world, and as we've talked about the last couple weeks, we tend not to see things through a lens of ancient kind of superstition, and most of us don't think through the world from this kind of scientific point of view that everything kind of has to make sense. Some of those things make their, their way into the way we interpret God. But more often than not, what we value and what we're told is we project onto God our consumer values and identities to him. That's who we are. Because what we're told is at the core of who we are, there is an individual who is in need and that need can always, always be met by some kind of product or entertainment. In fact, you see on an average day, I don't know if you knew this or not, 3,500 individual advertising messages telling you that you need everything from hair gel to the latest movie that just came out. You need, you need, you need, you need. You're a consumer, and you need to consume something in order to be satisfied. And oh, by the way, we've got the latest something. That's the message that you hear over and over and over again. And you hear it so often that you're, you're not even aware of the fact that you see yourself as a consumer. But, but the, the message that we've all been given for at least the last 50 years is you are a consumer, and you will only be satisfied when you consume every last bit of what we have to sell you. This isn't just an American thing, by the way, but we have perfected it in this country. And not only have we perfected it, but we've exported it to other places of the world too. And they're starting to operate as consumers just like we do. One of the, the ways that I saw this was actually in Haiti two weeks ago. 
Um, one of the, the strangest things, I was telling the team this, the first day that we were riding up the mountain to go to Shadrach um, and spend time with people that don't have things like running water or electricity, and yet when you're driving up the mountainside, the road goes away, you're on a cow path from this point on, People are riding donkeys up the mountainside to go back up to their farming villages. And along the way, you will see cell phone charging stations that are solar-powered. Did you know that? They're very, very common. People who don't have electricity or running water will walk down the mountain, cell phone in hand, plug it into a charging station, and sit there for as long as it takes to charge up, and then unplug it and walk back up to their village. I'm thinking to myself, who, who do you have to call, you know? <laughs> I mean, is there like a donkey repair man down the mountain that you have to like call? I mean, don't, don't mis, you know, represent what I'm saying. I'm, I'm not trying to judge them. I'm actually pointing the finger at us because the, they see themselves as a consumer society more and more and more and more. Because they've learned it from us and our affluence. Because they look at America and they go, that must be a nation that is fully satisfied with everything that they have. And so we need just a little bit more of what they've got so that life will be better here. It's very interesting. And one of the things that made Shadrach such a a fantastic community is because in some ways they're actually rejecting that identity and saying, no, 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 no. We don't want what you guys have because we know that it doesn't lead to life. We want what God is doing here among us. And don't get us wrong. We want clean water and education and all these other things. Um, But we want them so that we will be a better community that glorifies God in everything. But it's interesting, isn't it? They're learning from us. Just the way that our kids learn from us how to be consumers and to consume everything around us. And, and here's how this kind of works into the message today. Having a consumeristic value system, which, like it or not, all of us have. We, we can kind of point the finger at somebody else or somewhere else, but all of us actually have this deep within our system of beliefs, and we probably don't realize it yet. And, and that value system leads to a perspective of God that we're going to call life from God. Life from God. And what that means basically is this, that God exists in order for me to gain life from Him, to gain things from Him. God exists to help me through my problems and achieve what it is that I desire in my heart. So if you wanted to kind of put a face on it, it would be kind of like seeing God as sort of a divine butler or a therapist. It's somebody that you go to either for things or for self-improvement. And so when I, when I need those things, when I want them from my life, I, I go to seek them from him so that I can gain the happiness that I've been convinced that I deserve. It sounds really harsh when you put it that way, though, right? And yet all of us actually operate on some level under this view of God. And, and, and even when we try to resist against it, we are 
swimming in an ocean which tells us you need to expect things from God, and if you don't get them immediately, maybe he doesn't love you like you thought he did, right? Um, If I had to guess which one of all of these perspectives that we're going to be looking at throughout the series was most pervasive in our culture, it would be this one. It would be this one. And and so we need to really listen up close as we're kind of tackling this together. So so here's my encouragement to you. Um, Whenever we start to hear about consumerism, we always think of like the brother-in-law that has a real problem, you know? Like the guy that has two boats and three RVs and four cars and like, and you're thinking to yourself, man, if only he were here today to listen to this message. Or maybe you're kind of nudging the person beside you and going, you know, you, know, you may have been a little bit more of a problem than you, than you anticipated. I can't wait to see what God has to say to them, right? Um, tune in, okay? It's, tune in to what we have to say throughout this because Jesus, he, he tells a story in which he starts to compare how people interpret their relationship with God. And what he's doing is, by sharing this story, he is inviting both you and me to place ourselves in the story so that we would start to see ourselves and what's kind of at work in our own relationships with God. Okay? So, so it, this is actually his most famous parable. And I want you to kind of see it as maybe even that God is speaking to you today. Um, If you want to follow along, it's on page 726 in the Bibles that you have in front of you. Um, But it's it's Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. At least that's the title that we've given it. And um, it's found in Luke 15. So Jesus says this as he's telling the story. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided, this is the father, he divided his property between the two of them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had. He set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. So here's the context. The son, at least the younger one, he comes to his father and he says, Look, um, I know that you are wealthy. You have all of this stuff. And me being one of your two sons, I am entitled to certain things that you own that will one day be mine. And and I'm not willing to wait for those things. And and I don't really want to hang around here for too long. So I want to cash out on what's coming to me. And I want to take whatever that is, and I'm going to go off and kind of live it my way apart from you. In, In other words, he's saying to his father, I'm... I'm more interested in the things that you can provide me than I am in you. And what makes this request so unbelievable is that if if you think about kind of the long-term ramifications, um, when the father passes away, who gets the stuff? The son does, right? So it is legally what is his already. He already owns it. And yet he's saying to his father, I want it now, and I want it apart from you. I can't wait any longer. It's really a shocking statement, so so much so that it was against the law to do in that time. 
you, you weren't supposed to be able to do this, and yet the father grants him his request. And you think, man, how disrespectful could you possibly be to your own father that you say, I wish you were dead and I want your stuff? That's, I mean, in the grand scheme of what you can do to your parents, that's pretty bad. That's, that's up there, you know? Those of you who are parents, you, this wouldn't be like a great conversation that you had with your kids of going, I just feel so loved and respected as a parent. Man, I'm so glad that my, my son or daughter has come to me with this loving request. My guess is you'd be ticked off, right? You'd be going, how ungrateful can you be? How heartbreaking. But, but here's the thing. This life from God kind of perspective is actually no different from this son and his request to his father. Because when we focus not on the God who gives everything, but on the stuff that he gives in replacement of the God who gives it, we behave just like the arrogant son, don't we? We value what God can do for us rather than God himself. And we exchange one for another. And in the end, we end up pushing him away when we get the thing that our hearts most desire. Um, Just just, uh, yesterday, um, Mandy and I, we've both had kind of a long week. I've been sick all week, and she's been doing a lot of work. We've had a lot of evenings that that we've been busy. And so both of us just wanted to sleep in yesterday. And uh, and so Caleb was kind of up late, our two-year-old son, and uh, we we put him down to bed, kind of hoping and praying that he was going to you know, sleep in past his normal 7.30 time slot, which I know seems late. I know there are parents out there that are like, you have nothing to complain about, so don't even share this story. <laughs> I, frankly, I don't care, and I'm going to share it anyway. So. <laughs> um, so, so we go to bed. He's in bed, um, and, and morning rolls around, and I start to hear him stir. And uh, you know as a parent when your kid starts to stir and wake up because it just springs something in you, and you're used to getting up at a certain time, so I was already kind of half asleep already. And uh, he starts rolling around and kind of playing with some of the books that are in his crib, and I can hear him kind of, you know, waking up and yawning and getting ready to start his day. And uh, we're laying in bed, and my wife realizes it also, and uh, he... He has this thing where he stands up now and, and starts calling out to us. And normally I'm the person that kind of gets him up and gets him going in the morning because Mandy goes to work earlier than I do. And, and so we're, we're laying in bed, and, uh, and Caleb starts crying out, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. <laughs> and uh, so I look at Mandy, she looks at me, and she goes, I, you know, I, I think he wants his daddy. Which I'm convinced, you know, she walked in, he would have been just as satisfied with. (laughs) So so me wanting to to allow her to sleep in a little bit more, um, there there are like two things that will get me out of bed early in the morning. One is a fire, and and the second one is, is my son kind of crying out to me in need. So I go in. And uh, he's standing on the edge of his crib. He's still a little bit drowsy, but he's got this smile on his face. And so I walk up to the crib. And I'm like, hey, buddy, what's up? What do you, you know, what do you need? Are you still sleepy? You want to go back to bed? <laughs> you know? And, 
all the while I'm thinking to myself, maybe he just wants to be close to me. You know, maybe he just wants me. So I, you know, I, I go in real close with him, and I put my arms around him. I'm rubbing his back, and, and um, he looks up at me, and he's got this smile on his face. And I think, man, what is he going to say next, right? And he looks up at me with this big smile and bright eyes, and he goes, Pancake? <laughs> Over that week, we had made pancakes earlier in the week, and we made more than what we needed, so we put them into a bag. And then every morning, um, as part of our routine, I'd give him milk and I'd give him a pancake, and we'd kind of heat it up. But it's something at least that it, it wasn't messy enough that he couldn't eat it apart from all the bib and everything. And, and so he had gotten into the routine of getting a pancake for me every single morning. And so it's Saturday morning. Why is this any different, Right. And so I'm thinking, my son just loves me, and he wants me to be close to him. And my son is looking at me going, you are the gateway to a delicious pancake. You know? <laughs> now, I, I, it's a funny story, but I, I, I share that to say, um, how, how often in our lives when the Father, when our Heavenly Father is pressing into us, to reveal his presence to us, to say, I'm here for you. I love you. You have my love already. I've given it to you freely because of my son. I'm here. I love you. And we say back to him, pancake? (laughs) What can you give me, right? What else is there, God? What can I gain from you that I don't already have? And here's, here's the thing. Is the stuff that God can give all of us, is it bad? Things like a healthy family and a home and, and job and, and relationships. and I mean, we could go on and on and on and on. Are any of those bad things? No, of course not. Of course not. And, and the Bible is actually pretty clear about that God loves to give us those things. He loves to give, he, he even says, you fathers, even though you, you treat your, your children with evil, you still love to give them things. How much more does the Heavenly Father love to give in all of His goodness? God loves to give. And so uh, all of these things that we've been talking about throughout these weeks are twists on the reality of who God is. But as consumers, we come to God and we say, I don't just want you. I want only or more than what you offer in yourself. I want what you can give me. And so we see God as a means to an end rather than an end in Himself. And we ask God for things rather than enjoying his presence. God loves to give, but the thing he loves to give most is himself. And so often as consumers, though, we want the stuff rather than the person. It's making a a good thing an ultimate thing and taking the place of the spot that only God is able to fill in our lives. So, let me just, one of the things that you need to consider is, have you ever used God as a means to another end? I want you to think on that just for a second. Maybe ponder that throughout the week or discuss it in your life groups. Have I ever said to God, yeah, you're great and all, but I would rather have something else than you, and so I see you as a means to attain that other thing rather than something to be given in addition to you. 
In our culture, we are taught this mantra that everything's worth is measured by its personal usefulness to us. And so I stand at the center of the orbit of my life and everything revolves around me. And, and so when a product becomes invaluable to me, then we discard it for the new thing. You know, the iPad 2, it just it doesn't have the same screen as the iPad 3, and so I'm going to put that one aside and I'm going to get the new thing, right? Because this thing isn't quite as useful to me anymore. But here's the thing, we do it with relationships too. We bring that mentality into our marriages or into our friendships or even into our church communities. How many times have you judged the quality of a church that you've been a part of by what it can do for you? This one has great worship ministry. This one has great children's ministry. This one feeds me really well. Rather than saying, is God at work through this community in such a way that I can partner with them on mission to change the world? See how it infiltrates everything that we do and all that we are? It's everywhere. And we don't really realize it. So here's kind of the big idea. This is what we've been talking about. This life from God attitude, which says, I'm going to replace God, uh, his presence with the things that he gives. In other words, I'm going to use him as a means to another end. This will, and here's the truth, this will always leave us unsatisfied because instead of removing our fear and our need for control over our own lives, All it does is that we use the things that God gives to distract us from what's actually going on in our lives. It will satisfy us for a time. Just like sitting in a movie theater will entertain us for two hours and then afterwards we have to be the same people that we were before the movie. And as much as you try to like, as a kid, you know, you walk out of a movie theater and you go, I'm Batman. You know, like, do you ever do that? Like, you try to become the superhero that you saw in the movie, and for a little bit of time, you feel stronger, you feel better, because you, you watched the person in the movie. Over time, though, that all fades, and you actually become the person you were before. It works the same way with life from God. We use it as a way to kind of satisfy us for a time, but that satisfaction will always leave us. And the reason it is because we're always filling the place that only God can fulfill in our hearts and in our minds and our lives with things that temporarily satisfy us and weren't designed to take that place because only God is. This is the way it kind of plays out in the story, and we can follow up with this younger son. He says, after he had spent everything, shocker there, right, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. He's going back to the person he was before. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So how many of us, like this son, have filled our lives or are filling our lives with trivial possessions or experiences as an attempt to distract us from the fears and pains of life. Here's the truth about consumerism. If you're kind of in that process or have been in that process, it never lasts. It never, ever 
last. It always satisfies for a time. But rather than removing our fear and pain, consumerism just distracts us from them. But here's the promise of the Scriptures. A day will come, a time will come, and may have already come for you when you realize that there aren't enough products, there isn't enough entertainment in the world to distract you long enough or deep enough from the fear of not having control over your life. There just isn't. And we have a lot of products out there. And we can fill our entire lives with those things, going from one thing to the next thing, hoping that it will do the job, and we're going to find that that we're always dissatisfied, and yet something else will always come and take its place and go, yeah, well, that product was flawed. Look at the iPad 3. And when that one's flawed, look at the next one, right? So how do we find a way out? Um, If consumerism won't satisfy us, where in the world should we turn to? And and this is where the, the story turns a corner for the son. He says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired men. So he got up and he went to his father. Here's the thing. The the son finally comes to his senses and he realizes the sin under the sin. He realizes what starting to motivate him towards this demand that he gave to his father. So it's not just that he's realizing he was greedy. He's saying, I'm starting to understand that being my father's son was worth far more than what he could give me. Everything that he showered upon me in this brass decision of mine None of that actually compares to being a son. He's starting to see it because he's saying, I'm not even worthy to be his son anymore. And being a son is what was worth all the trouble in the first place. He's starting to realize that he had more when he was in his father's household than he had when he had everything to spend on himself. It's an amazing shift that he makes which starts to open up his entire reality and get him back on the track of being in relationship with his father. See, it's not enough to kind of repent of consumerism. It really isn't. Because we we can start to say stuff like, oh man, I'm I'm so sorry, God, that I watch so much TV. I'm, I'm so sorry that I bought that thing and I shouldn't have bought it. And I know I didn't have the money for it, but I bought it anyway because I was trying to impress my friends and they don't even like the thing that I bought. And so I kind of feel bad about that. All that does over time is it creates more and more and more and more guilt. And guilt actually never leads to transformation. Did you know that? Some of us have lived kind of a religious life for a very long time. Um, with people that have told us over and over and over again, you need to feel guilty for the way that you live. The way to change is to feel more guilty. The more guilt you feel, the better you are. 
Just feel guilty about it, and you'll stop doing it, and you'll transform yourself. That never works. It never works. Here's why. Because your guilt will always lead you back to the same thing that you thought was going to satisfy you in the first place. It's the same reason why guilt never leads to someone getting out of uh, drug addiction. Because their guilt makes them feel worse about themselves, and when they feel worse about themselves, they need to go back to the source that made them uh, kind of escape from feeling bad about themselves. And so it's this process that just repeats itself over and over and over again. And you need to find a way to break it. The only way to break it is to realize that the thing that's motivating you to pursue the stuff that you know you don't need is to know that there's something out there that's better than what you've been pursuing. And there is. There is. And the son actually discovers what that is. He discovers in an amazing way the transforming love of his own father that has been there the entire time. So he goes back, right? He gets up and he goes back and let's see what the father does. And sometimes we think, man, the father's going to be ticked off, right? He's going to be like one of these guys that'd be like, I don't know. You really hurt me back then. I don't know if I can trust you again. I don't know if I could even hire you to be in my fields now because you're an untrustworthy son. And even that, you're actually no longer a son. Because I've given you everything of what it means to be a son and you've already squandered it, so you have no right to even be on our property anymore because it no longer belongs to you. And sometimes, this is where guilt leads, we, we think as we approach God, he has that same mentality towards us. He, he sees and he knows the stuff that we've done and the things that we've pursued in place of him when we think, man, if I go running back to God, he's going to throw it all back in my face again. He's, it's going to be a lecture. And I'm going to have to endure it over and over and over again. I mean, how long is this going to last? Yeah, I'm sorry for the last time. We interpret God to be like this dysfunctional father. But here's what you need to see. God is, and this is the point of Jesus telling the story, God is the father of this story. He is the father. So when you hear the father in his response to his own disobedient son, who ran away from him and did everything apart from his father to get away from him and reject the love that he had for him, understand that if you've done the same thing, and here's the truth we all have, God's response to us is the same as we're about to see in the story. And so picture it. Picture yourself coming back onto the property. You know that you have spent your life in ways that, that don't please your father. Something called sin, and it's something that we all deal with. And so all of us are walking back to our father's household, just hoping maybe that God will give us kind of the, the, the job in the shed, scooping horse manure. If that's your level of expectation, read how shocking this is. 
says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. The father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now what in the world is the father doing by putting a robe on him and, and putting a ring on his fingers and sandals on his feet? These aren't things that you do for a servant even. These are things that you do for a son. You want to know what the father is doing at this point? He's readopting his son back into his family. This son who has absolutely no right to even call this man a father anymore. The father is saying, I am, you are here, I see you, and I'm going to do everything necessary, everything possible, everything I need to do in order to bring you back into my family and show you the love that I have for you and how it replaces all things. And it's interesting, right? Because the father sheds upon his son some expensive gifts, does he not? He gives him a robe and a ring and some sandals. He kills the the best calf so that they can eat it and celebrate as a family again. He gives them all these things as an expression of his love. And yet the best thing that the father did for his son is that he ran to him. He ran. He saw his son coming back in sorrow, and he ran out to his boy to recapture him with that love and bring him back into his life again. See, the the only thing that will bring you to a place where you're able to actually change from consumerism, from looking for things that only God can give apart from the God who gives them, is when you realize fully that the love of the Father, the love that He has for you, is far greater than any other thing He could give to you. It has far more worth, far more value than any other gift He could shed upon you. And so as you're praying, God, just please give me a job. God is saying in response to you, I'll give you a job, but don't look to that job to say who you are as an individual because it will never satisfy you. Only my love for you will satisfy you. And here's the best news of all. It's yours. It's yours. You've already got it. And you know that you have it because I've already sent my son to take your place so that I could clothe you in my love in all things. And if you would just walk in your life for a moment, understanding a piece of my love for you, then whether you had a job or you didn't have a job, you wouldn't see it as the end of the world because you'd know that you have my love already. 
If I give you wealth, then fantastic. But if I take that wealth away, you know that it's not because I don't love you. If I give you a family, then enjoy that family as an expression of my love. But do not see it as a replacement for it because they will never satisfy you apart from me. You'll look to them as a savior and every time they will disappoint you. And I never will because I'm your father and I love you. I mean, apply this to every area of your life and see everything that you do as a pursuit of either God or something else. And God is asking all of us, take those things and compare them one to another and see for yourself which one doesn't hold more value. Do you know how much I paid in order to give my love to you? I gave my only son for it. If you'd know that love, then every other thing that you come across in this world would be fine if you have it and fine if you don't because you know you've got the most important, the most expensive, the greatest gift that you could ever receive. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the good news that breaks us from consumerism. It's the good news that sets us free to live all of life satisfied and at peace because we know that God loves us. That's what Jesus came for. It's the only thing that breaks us from this life from God is the life with God. It's the one that we're going to reinforce over and over and over again as we go throughout this series. I hope that you're starting to get a picture of it and what it means in your life. So we're going to pray, and then we're going to respond to God in worship because he's already given us the love that we need. So even in our love for him, we can give back to him knowing that God doesn't expect it or long for it in any way, but he he loves to hear the praise of his children when they come to him and say, God, we need you. So let's pray. Father, I... Thank you just seems so small and insignificant compared to your grace and how great it is and how much you love us and how much you've demonstrated that love through the crucifixion of your own son. And so we look to the cross and we see that the, the, the beloved son, the one who never rebelled, the one who never uh, took the stuff that you have apart from you, the the one who never asked for his inheritance and said, God, I don't need you. That son, that perfect son, he died so that we who have rejected you, have looked the other way, have run from you, can be re-accepted, re-adopted back into your family and know and experience the love of God in, in the most significant way, the way that only changes who we are from the inside out. God, we need your spirit to reveal that truth to us. So even right now, if, if, if it just seems like a distant truth, something that, that doesn't make sense to us, something that we're not quite sure if it's for us or not, that, that your spirit would part all of that stuff so that we could see it for ourselves, so that we could know that the Father looks 
at us. He sees us in our seat where we are today. And he says, you are my beloved son. You're my beloved daughter. And I've made the way. I've done everything possible to bring you back into my family. Now accept my love for what it is. It's a love that we don't deserve, and yet it's a love that you give freely. Let us be amazed by it. Let us live our lives for it. Let, it let, us, let us live our lives in pursuit of it, that we may know it to a greater extent, to a greater depth. Let it change who we are. Let us not be satisfied with any other thing except the love of the Father. It's that love that we celebrate now through your Son. Amen.